Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for these ancient words that across the ages speak right to our hearts today, right from your heart. And Lord, I pray that you would make us attentive to your word and what it is that you have said and what it is that you would have us here today. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to taste again the joy of our salvation because of our encounter with your word here this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Let's turn our attention now to Psalm 51. And as we set this up this morning, I want to ask you to, uh, to do some imagining with me for a moment. I want you to imagine that you are being led away to die. It's a public death. It's an execution. And your town has lined up to watch you. You see the crowds. And among the crowds, you see the faces of your family. Maybe your young children looking at you with big eyes. And you can see down the main road to the city square where you glimpse the shape of a stake on a tall platform surrounded by surrounded by bunches of branches. And you know that nearby stands oil and a torch. And within half an hour, you will be tied to that stake. The fire will be lit and you'll be burned to death. What do you say? What words come to your heart, your mind, and come out of your lips? For many Christians, especially during the time of the Reformation, the picture that I just painted is not imagination. This happened hundreds of times over. Fathers, mothers, burned alive, with their families watching, simply because they believed the gospel and, and they refused to recant and refused to repent of their belief in the gospel. And for many of these Christians, many of these martyrs during the Reformation, do you know what the last words on their mouths were? What they were saying as they were led down, what they were saying as the fire was lit, what they were saying until they could say no more? Psalm 51. So much so that Psalm 51 is known to history as the martyr's psalm. So what in the world is going on there? Why would this... Just think about this. An ancient prayer of confession from an Israelite king who is guilty of adultery and murder. Why would those be the chosen last words on the mouths of Christian martyrs two and a half centuries later? And why are we talking about all of this three centuries later? Well, I hope by the time that we're done this morning, you'll have an answer to that question. And perhaps... Perhaps because of what we do here this morning, perhaps Psalm 51 might be the words that might come from your mouth when your time comes. That's a tall order. We're talking about your last words, but I think that you're going to find Psalm 51 lives up to the reputation. So here's what we want to do. We want to begin like we always want to begin with the psalm by considering the background of the psalm itself. Original setting, 
Remember that as you look in your Bible, uh, in the Psalms, there's these headings uh, in small caps. Uh, This one says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Those headings are a part of the biblical text, okay? And this is telling us the setting for this psalm. Most of you are familiar with the story. King David, after years on the run, finally got settled in a capital city of Jerusalem. Instead of being out in the wilderness, he's in a strong city. And he had this incredible stretch of victories over his enemies. Things were finally going well for him. And one spring, instead of going out with his armies the way the other kings did, David decided to stay home in Jerusalem, maybe to enjoy a little well-deserved R&R. I mean, we don't know for sure, but that's sort of the the impression because one afternoon, late one afternoon, we're told he gets up off of his couch. And so he'd probably been having an afternoon nap. He goes for a walk on the roof of his house, which would have been the highest point in the city, right? Jerusalem is built on this Mount Zion. And he looks down and he sees the wife of one of his elite warriors. It's something that we often miss, right? Uriah the Hittite was one of David's 30 mighty men who had fought with him by his side when he was out in the wilderness, when he was fighting for his life, when he was running from Saul. So one of his faithful elite band of 30 mighty men who is off fighting his battles somewhere else. His wife is having a bath on her roof. David sees her. He knows that her husband is miles away, and he's the king, and he can do whatever he wants, and he's overcome with lust. He sends for Bathsheba. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant, and to cover up his sin, David arranges for her husband, one of his loyal servants, one of his mighty men, to be murdered. And then, with her husband out of the way, David takes Bathsheba, makes her his own wife, and she bears him a son. You can read all about this in 2 Samuel 11. And 2 Samuel 11 ends by saying, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Okay? You could literally translate that, the matter that David did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So David does incredible evil. But the Lord comes for David. The Lord sends Nathan the prophet. He tells David a parable about a rich man who stole his neighbor's sheep to feed some guests. And and David reacts in outrage. And Nathan says, you are the man. That that story's about you, David. And Nathan goes on to say more, confronting David for his sin. And after hearing it all, 2 Samuel 12, 13, David says this, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, one of the things in in Hebrew narrative, so again, when, when, when Hebrew's telling us about like when the Hebrew Bible is telling us about history, about things that happened, it's it's always pretty brief. You know, we kind of wish you could have more detail a lot of the time. So David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And you might say like, okay, so what's what's going on there? Is this like, yeah, yeah, Nathan, I guess you're right. Sorry, that maybe that wasn't a great, great thing. You know, is, is he just saying this to get Nathan off his back? Or does David really understand what he did? And Psalm 51 is the answer. Psalm 51 shows us the inner story of what's really going on with David as he responds to Nathan and as he processes all of this afterwards. So that's the background. Let's follow along as we make four stops in Psalm 51 looking at how how David responded to the Lord after this confrontation. The first stop, which is second point in our outline here, is, is in verses one and two. In many ways, verse 1 and 2 are the outline 
And the summary, maybe is the better word, the summary for the whole psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David knows what he deserves for his crimes against Bathsheba and against Uriah. These are not just sins. These were crimes that he committed, and he deserves the death penalty. So we, we got to understand that, right? David is begging for his life here. He deserves to die, and he's begging God for, for his very life. Notice the different words that David uses here for sin. He uses the word transgressions. He uses the word iniquity. He uses the word sin. And then notice here in these first two verses, there's really four things that David asks God for. He asks God to have mercy on him. So be kind instead of showing judgment. Second, he asks God to blot out his transgressions. That's like the idea that God is a record book of everything we've done. And he's asking God to wipe this sin out of God's record book so so that God has no record that it ever happened. Third, he says, ask that God to wash him from his iniquity. Fourth, that he would be cleansed from his sin. Notice here, just in these first two verses, notice how multidimensional sin is. Sin makes us dirty and we need to be cleaned. Sin is recorded by God in his heavenly record book and that needs to be wiped out. And sin, the dirt and the record, provokes God's judgment and so we need God's mercy instead of God's judgment. See, see how sin affects so many different things? And, and David's asking God to take care of it all. So David, he begs for mercy. Now, notice, though, as David begs for mercy, what's the, what's the basis for his, his request? Like, why should God forgive David? Right? If you're going to go, let's say you've done something terrible and your boss is about to fire you, and you go to your boss and you say, please give me a break, cut me some slack. You're going to give him a reason why. What's the reason that David gives God for why God should have mercy on him? I mean, what would even give David the idea that God would be merciful in the first place? Like, where do you even get this idea from that this is an option to ask for mercy? Well, look what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgression. Guys, do you notice how important this is? That David, when David wants to give a reason for why he should be forgiven, he points to God. Your steadfast love, your abundant mercy. He doesn't point to anything in himself. Have mercy on me, O God, because I won't do it again. Have mercy on me, O God, because I'm really, really sorry and I'll I'll make up for it. Have mercy on me, O God, because I was really tired that day. My other wives were all having bad days. Have mercy on me because look at how much good I've done for you over the years. Look at how many psalms I've written. Have you ever tried to barter with God like that? I'm not that bad. No, David knows he is that bad. And his only hope is that God is a God who shows mercy. Now, where, where does David get this from? All this language, even these words for sin, these three words that he uses, 
And this idea that God would even do this, this all comes from this beautiful passage in Exodus 34, where, where God is about, God has told Moses, I'm not going to go with you people anymore. This is after, the, after they made the golden calf, and, 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 and God says, I'm not going to go with you as you go up to Egypt. And Moses begs for God to show himself and, and to come with him and to show him his glory. And we see this in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. And, and in the context here, guys, this is God telling his name. This is God introducing himself. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. See, there it is. When God introduces himself, this is, this is how he introduces himself. This is who he is. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is a God of mercy and justice, showing staggering mercy to people who don't deserve it. Why? That's just who he is. That's who he is. He forgives sin because that's what he does, but he's also not Santa Claus. He also judges the guilty. And, and there's this tension there of, well, how do we know whether I'm going to get the mercy or if I'm going to get the judgment. And David knows he's guilty. He knows he deserves judgment. He can't assume that God is just going to let him off the hook. So he grabs a hold of God's name. And he says, God, I know who you are. I know what you said to Moses. Please be merciful to me, not because I deserve it. Just, that's who you are. Please forgive me, not because I deserve it, but that's what you do. And he begs for mercy. That's just verses 1 and 2. Don't worry, we won't spend as much time on every single verse in this psalm, but those two verses at the beginning set, set the tone. This is so important to see what's going on here. You can almost stop and make a whole application here. Where do you find hope when you have no hope? David finds hope in God's word, which reveals God's character. Let's move on into the next section, verses 3 to 5. David here confesses his sin to the Lord. David does not try to hide his sin. He doesn't try to whitewash it. He doesn't try to downplay it like we've seen. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, he says in verse 3. I mean, David has been stuffing down a guilty conscience for the last few months. It had been months, right? Because the kid had been born already. So it had been at least nine months, probably more. I think we all know what it's like to have a guilty conscience and to just kind of keep the pressure on it. You know, when Nathan showed up, he wasn't really, he didn't have to convince David that David had sinned. David knew it. He just had to help him realize it. Verse four, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Isn't that astounding? I mean, didn't David sin against a lot of people? Bathsheba, Uriah, Joab, right? His general who carried the message, got him involved. The nation, I mean, he broke their trust. God established David as king over the nation to care for the nation. And instead, David uses his position of, of privilege and power to become a predator, preying on the nation, taking the best for himself. Didn't he sin against all these people? Yeah. 
But David understands, as he sinned against all those people, you know who he was really sinning against was the Lord. Why? Well, who made those people? In his image, God. Who gave him that position? God. Who gave him all the good things that he had already given him? God. So when David abuses his power and reaches out for more, he's slapping God in the face. And not to mention... God had specifically told his people not to do those things. I mean, think of how many of the 10, just the 10 commandments David broke. Not envying, not stealing, not murdering, not committing adultery, at least four. That's what Nathan said, right? In 2 Samuel 12, 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? It's like David was just trampling on God's word. Every sin anybody ever commits is ultimately a sin against God. And so David admits, rest of verse 4, whatever God says against him, whatever God does to judge him, that would be fair and just. That's the idea here. Against you and you only have I sinned, that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God, however you judge me, it's fair, because you're the one that I've sinned against. Notice, guys, we we can't miss this again. Notice how David is not blaming anybody else for his sin, even though other people perhaps were involved. Should Bathsheba have been having a bath on her roof in view of, of of of, of his palace? Probably not. Should Joab have obeyed David's orders to have Uriah killed? Probably not. But none of that excuses David. He was responsible for himself. And whatever anyone else did or didn't do, he was responsible for what he did. And so he takes full responsibility for himself when he says, against you and you only have I sinned. This is between him and God. Now, verse 5, David recognizes that his sin is so complete and so thorough that it goes all the way back to his birth. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. David was a person in his mother's womb. Don't miss that. And actually, everybody knows that these days. Science has shown that very thoroughly. Everybody knows that babies in their mother's wombs are babies. They're people. But David wasn't just a person. He was a sinner. He's a sinner from the time his life began. Now, And I don't think we should see him blaming his sin on this. I think given the whole tone here, this is, this is more uh, appropriate to see this as a lament. He's just lamenting, like, my, my sin's so complete, I've never been able to escape from it. So in verses 3 to 5, David admits what happened. He admits it's between him and God. He owns his sin. And he admits, I I can't rescue myself from this sin. It's so complete, I've never been without it. I'm I'm helpless to save myself. That's the idea here. So, what happens next? Well, in verses 6 to 12, David asks for salvation. That's the focus here. David is asking God to save him. But again, here's what we have to see, what's so important. David is not mainly asking to be saved from the death penalty. He's not just mainly saying, please don't let me die, please don't let me die. 
What's the focus in verses 6 to 12? That David would be rescued from the presence and the power of sin itself. That's in him. That sin that goes all the way back to his childhood. That's what he wants to be saved from. David knows this all started in his heart, right? When Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust after, you've, you've committed adultery. David knew that. He knew it started in his heart. And so God, David is asking God to restore and to save his heart. He says in, in verse 6, that's what God wants. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And so verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. At the temple, they would use hyssop and water and blood to make objects and people clean. But David knows that all those rituals are just pointing to the deeper truth that, that, that our hearts need to be clean. That's what he's asking for, to have his joy restored. Verse 10, some of us know this as some of the most key verses in this psalm. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. That word for create, Every other time in the Hebrew Bible is used to speak about God's work of creating something out of nothing. So this, is, this word is never used for like someone making something. This word is always used of God creating something. Let there be light. That, that kind of thing. David can't change his own heart any more than David can say, let there be light. Right? D- David is as powerless to fix himself as he is powerless to create a new world. God has to do this. God needs to do a new work of creation, making something, a clean heart, where, where there once was not a clean heart. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. David knows that's what he deserves. I mean, the, the focus here is not whether this could happen. Like, is it possible to have the Holy Spirit taken away? That's, that's not the point. The point is that that's what he deserves. He deserves to be thrown away from God's presence. He deserves to have the Holy Spirit taken from him. And so he's saying, God, please don't do that. Please don't leave me alone here. Please don't give me what I deserve. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David wants to, his spirit to be willing to obey God again. And he asked God to give that to him. So guys, do you see how important this is? David's focus, not just on being saved from death, but on being restored to relationship with God. That's what he wants. And now we get to the last movement in the Psalms where we find out where this is all headed. Why does, why does David want to be restored? Why does David want a clean heart? It's so that he can worship God and can bring others to worship God. David doesn't just want to stop feeling lousy. Isn't that something that often, you know, when we've sinned and we're feeling guilty, we just kind of want to feel better. So forgiveness I, if it helps us feel better, I guess that's good. <laughs> See, that's not where David is. 
David wants to be restored to the Lord so he can worship him. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to me, return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, right? My sin has closed my lips, but God, you can open them and my mouth will declare your praise. See, that's where all this is headed. Just like last week, right? Save me so I can praise you. That's what he's saying. God is glorified when he saves sinners. David has been going through the motions for months. Just think about this. He's been keeping this buried for months. He's been going to the temple or the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. He's been going through the motions for months. He doesn't want to go through the motions anymore. He wants to praise God for real. That idea of going through the motions is what's coming up in verse 16 here. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. He'd been offering sacrifices and burnt offerings for months here while his heart was far away. And he knows God... If I come with an animal and yet my heart's far away, that, you don't care. That's not what you're looking for. He wants his heart. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So he, he brings the sacrifice now of his heart to the Lord. Verse 18, he looks to God to build up the city, right? David knows his sin has affected the nation and he's seeking blessing for his people. And when that happens, then, verse 19, then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And that's where Psalm 51 ends, with the hope and the expectation that God will hear his prayer, save him, spare his life, restore him to right relationship with him, restore the nation, and that God will be worshipped as David and other redeemed sinners come into God's presence, not just with animal sacrifices, but with hearts desiring to please the Lord and that God will be worshipped. So was David's prayer answered? Well, it was. There was discipline. There was consequences. His child died. All this stuff happened with Absalom. But in and through that all, God showed David way more kindness than he deserved. Just consider this, that it was through Bathsheba that the Messiah would come who would one day make this forgiveness even possible in the first place. But let's not jump ahead there too quickly, because before we get to Jesus, we want to stop and ask what it meant for Israel to sing Psalm 51 before Jesus came. Just think about this. Psalm 51, the book of Psalms, is not David's private journal. This was Israel's hymn book. So what did it mean for Israel for, for hundreds of years to sing Psalm 51? Actually, we have record that, that they would sing Psalm 51 every year on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a goat and a bull and make atonement for the people. They would sing Psalm 51. What did it mean for them to sing David's words? Well, here's some suggestions. 
As Israel sung Psalm 51, they'd be reminded, sin lurks inside each of us. If David could sin that way, so can we. As Israel sung this song, they'd be reminded that even if they hadn't murdered and committed adultery, their small sins were sins against God. And so this psalm would keep their consciences soft, reminding them they needed mercy just as much as David did. Psalm 51 would remind Israel, if God forgave David, he could forgive them. And in particular, the last verses remind Israel that their lives were interwoven together. Their sins affected the nation. They needed to get right with God for the sake of each other. By singing this psalm on the Day of Atonement, they'd be reminded blood needed to be shed to pay for their sins. But finally, just consider this. By singing this psalm on the Day of Atonement, year after year after year, they would be reminded that the blood of bulls and goats was not fixing the problem. It was not finally ever dealing with their sin. More animals always needed to be killed. And so this psalm would have reminded them the promise of a new covenant where God would give them new hearts once and for all. And they waited. They waited until the Messiah come through the line of Bathsheba. I mean, look at that in Matthew chapter 1, right? Jesus traces his line through Bathsheba. And these words are fulfilled in Jesus. Not that Jesus ever needed to say these words. Jesus never had to ask for forgiveness for anything. Rather, Jesus makes forgiveness possible. Jesus makes it possible for God to say yes to every person who ever prayed Psalm 51. How can God just say okay to our request for mercy? Jesus, because on the real day of atonement, Jesus would be sacrificed on the cross paying the debt for the adultery and the murder and the lust and the hatred and the selfishness of every person who has ever prayed Psalm 51 with a genuine heart. And the risen son of David, enthroned at the Father's right hand, would send his spirit to give his people the new heart. Created me a clean heart, O God. That happens when we're born again. And the mercy that Psalm 51 begs for was bought and paid for by Jesus, who today gives it to whoever asks. Whoever asks. And that brings us to us. Because on this side of Calvary, we can see Psalm 51 is about the gospel. Psalm 51 is about being saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Think of those words that we sang earlier. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. I love that song for how it so perfectly expresses the desperation at the heart of salvation by faith alone. God, if if you don't have mercy on me, I have no hope. 
that that's what's going on there And Psalm 51 points us to the Jesus who promised, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We bring nothing but our cries for mercy and God saves because he abounds in steadfast love and because his son died to guarantee it. Maybe there are some of you here today who need to pray or maybe some of you who might be listening to this who need to pray Psalm 51 for the first time, who might need to for the first time say, God, have mercy on me. And you can rest assured that he will say yes. So bring your nothing, bring your nothing and feel the Father's welcome today. Now, In this last stop in our message here, we are, for the past four weeks, including today, have been looking at worship. Psalm 51 is a part of Israel's hymn book. It was a part of Israel's worship. And so we want to ask, what does Psalm 51 have to say about our worship as the people of God together today? Does Psalm 51 have any place once we have come to Jesus Does Psalm 51 have any place in our worship? Any place in our lives? The answer is yes, because for one, the New Testament shows us confessing sin is a normal part of the Christian life. I mean, how did Jesus teach us to pray? Right there, one of the main requests, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. 1 John 8.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus paid for our forgiveness once and for all, but he wants us to come to the Father to seek that forgiveness regularly, which means that forgiveness and confession of our sin is going to be a regular part of our lives as Christians. Which means that Psalm 51 is for us. Psalm 51 shows us how to confess, how to ask for forgiveness. Psalm 51 is for us. As I thought about this truth this week, though, I had a serious question. How does what we've just said fit with what the New Testament teaches us about genuine holiness? Now that we have been given new hearts through the Holy Spirit, we shouldn't we know that we shouldn't stay stuck in that same place that when we when we first came to Jesus like sin can't reign over us we we can't just keep doing the same things over again we should grow in genuine holiness so do you see the tension here if we've been born again if we've been given new hearts then why would we ever need to pray psalm 51 again And couldn't Psalm 51 actually encourage us to kind of just stay stuck, wallowing in our sin, never making any progress? Every day it says, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, and we just kind of stay there. Well, how might we respond to that? How does Psalm 51 fit with the idea that we have been saved and should be growing in holiness? Well, three, three kind of slices on this. The first one, there's a difference between progressing and being perfect, right? We must grow to be like Jesus, but that's different from saying that we're going to be perfectly be like him. 
I was thinking about my relationship with my wife. We celebrated our 12th anniversary this summer. I love her way more than I did 12 years ago. And my love for her, I just tried to not cry here, but my love for her grows like, like all the time. Is it perfect? Do I still have to ask her for forgiveness often? Yes, my love for her is far from perfect, but that doesn't mean that it's not real and growing. Holiness is the same way. It, it needs to be real and growing even while we realize it's, it's not perfect. So Psalm 51 and growing in holiness, they fit together. Here's a second answer. The more a Christian grows to be like Jesus, the more that they are aware of things that they didn't notice before. As they beat one sin, they might notice another one they hadn't noticed before. I've seen this again and again when I have helped and walked with guys who are breaking free from porn. One of the favorite things in my job, I love, I love seeing what happens when a guy gets free from something that had him enslaved for so long. But one of the first things that you notice, that they notice, is a bunch of other sins that they hadn't noticed before because this one thing was just consuming all of their attention. And now you kill one sin and you see a whole bunch of others that you need to fight. And so that's kind of, the, in some ways, the path of the Christian life. As we grow, we see more yet to grow in. Here's the third answer. The longer that you walk with Jesus, the more vulnerable you are to spiritual pride. I wish it wasn't this way. I wish that just knowing Jesus for a longer time made, meant that we were just holier automatically. But look at the Apostle Paul caught up to heaven itself, knew Jesus so well, and God knew that he could get conceited, so he gave him a thorn in his flesh, right? The, the more that we know Jesus, our, our flesh is so sneaky that the more mature we get, our flesh can tempt us to think that we're so awesome and so great. And so we need to repent of that and confess that. So there's more we could say here. This is important, though. Real growth and holiness and real confession of sin, they're always going to go together. Now, if all this is true, and if Psalm 51 was a part of Israel's worship, confession of sin should be a part of our worship today. And I hope that you can see all the ways that it already is. If you just think about our worship here at Emmanuel, we regularly sing songs that talk about our sinfulness and celebrate the way that Jesus rescued us. We, in our pastoral prayer, one of the elders leads in prayer like Doug did here. We can have time to confess our sins. We give regular opportunities as the service starts and ends to be quiet and confess our sins. If, if that's what we need to do. We share the Lord's Supper. We, we took time to do that today and we celebrate the mercy. And you can see in our preaching, we don't shy away from talking about this kind of stuff. But I can't help but wonder if there's room for us to grow. Throughout history, throughout church history, many churches have been much more explicit than we are in giving space in their services for confession. In many churches throughout history, it was very common each week for the people together out loud to confess their sins to the Lord, often using words right from Psalm 51. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. And then the pastor leading the service would respond by assuring the people that their sins are forgiven for the sake of Jesus. 
I was at a church this summer that practiced this. It's a church from a very different tradition than, than ours, but a gospel-believing, Bible-believing church. And we did this together. We confessed out loud our sin together. It was wonderful. It, it really kind of, remember that thing we talked about last week, you know, when everyone comes to church and we pretend we're all fine? Nothing kind of puts a pin in that than saying we all stand up and we say together, have mercy on us, O God, for we've sinned, or, or whatever the words are. It, it really kind of levels you all out. And it leads to joy. Right? That's Psalm 51. Look, the, the, the confession leads to worship. It doesn't leave us wallowing in bad feelings. It leads us to a clean conscience and knowing that we're accepted for Jesus' sake. And so I wonder, I wonder if, if we need to think about are, are there ways that in our worship together, more explicitly, we need to confess our sins to the Lord so that we can taste the joy of forgiveness and can respond to God with the joyful worship of the redeemed who say, Lord, have mercy on me. And I know you have. Wash my sins and I know you have. I think this is why Psalm 51 was on the mouths of so many martyrs. Nothing brings reality into focus but then knowing that in just a few short minutes you'll be dead in the presence of God. And each one of those martyrs knew that they were actually all in David's shoes, deserving judgment. No amount of good works they'd done could save them from hell. But the words of Psalm 51 point our hearts towards the mercy of God who says, come to me. No matter how sinful you are, no matter what you've done, come and receive steadfast love, receive mercy. And as we ask for it, we trust the promise that it has been given in Christ. So this morning, whatever we do in the future as a church and our worship together, this morning, take up Psalm 51. Here's, here's a very practical suggestion. Memorize the first two verses. First two verses, really simple. Why don't you memorize those first two verses and make them your prayer when, when you feel guilty about something and, and you're not sure what to do about it. Just pray to God for mercy. And trust his promise that it's yours. Let Psalm 51 lead you by the hand through repentance and confession into the heart of a father full of steadfast love who promises to receive all who come to him by faith. Father in heaven, we praise you that this is who you are, that you are the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God, would you use Psalm 51 to take us by the hand again and again and to lead us through repentance into your heart and into the safety and the joy of knowing we've been forgiven. Would you help us to do that on our own, in our lives this week? Would you help us to do that together? Show us what this looks like, Lord. Make us a happy, joyful, confessing people. I ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. <laughs>